State of Digital Publishing is creating a new publication and community for digital publishing and media professionals in new media and technology. In this episode, we speak with Insanul Ahmed, executive editor at Genius, on how to get into music journalism, blending community and editorial. Let's begin. You said, that, and I was just hearing a bit of your other podcast that you did last year. You called yourself a trend spotter, given that we're on that point now. So, how do you go about finding trends? Uh, that's a good question. Yeah, the thing about trends, I'll always say, man, is this three makes a trend. I think a lot of people always reach where they notice one thing happen, like they have one big thing happen, and then they see two other minor things, and it's a trend. And I'm like, that's not a trend. A trend is when three things happen, that's a trend. So, a good example of this to me was I worked on a piece earlier this year that I edited about the rise of Latin trap. And, you know, to me, it was like I had one example. Everyone knew this summer. Everybody heard Despacito. Of course. You know, everyone knows about that, yeah. Of maybe all time, right? So that's a big record and that's cool. Okay. And then I noticed along the way that there was another song that was pretty big but not quite as big as Mi Gente from J Balvin. And this is actually a few, a couple of months ago, actually before the Beyonce remix actually happened, when I think that got on a lot more people's radar. But these are two big Spanish-language songs that were charting in the U.S. That's like a trend, that's the starting of a trend, but to me that's not enough. you got to get the third thing, right? So I waited until, you know, I was like, that's kind of the idea in the back of my head. I didn't see a place for it to work. And then a friend of mine played me an artist named Bad Bunny, who is, although he's not as popular in the U.S., but he is a huge artist in the Latin world, and he's a Puerto Rican Latin trap artist. And then I looked into him and then I started looking into that scene and I say, wait, now there's enough juice. Now we have enough, three artists. We have a huge song from a legend of Daddy Yankee and Luis Fonsi for Despacito. We have another big hit with Jay Balvin and his song Mi Gente. And there's another artist now, there's Bad Bunny. And underneath Bad Bunny, there's Ozuna and there's other guys in the scene. And I was like, okay, now you have something. So the one of the things about trend spotting always is you got to find at least three artists or three songs to make something a trend. That to me is the easiest way. A lot of times when people will tell you a trend and they'll name you like, you know, it's like, you know, I was having this thing in the office. We were like, oh, it's the trend of Afrobeats. And I was like, oh, you know, because Drake did it and Wizkid and this other person. And I was like, yeah, but... WizKid is only famous for doing a Drake song, and Drake already did it, so basically you don't have three songs, you have one song, you just have Drake. And that's not a trend. You just have a bit, one big artist doing one big thing is not a trend. If you have three artists doing a trend, even if they're three mid-sized artists, then you have a trend. So to me, I'm a very strong proponent of the rule of threes, where you don't have a trend if you don't have at least three people. That's pretty solid advice. Like, I really liked how you explained it as well, so thanks, man. Yeah, no doubt. In saying that, like you've covered some of the trends now and the, the bit of the landscape for DC, but can you elaborate a bit more about what the current music climate is and what? And I know you talked about a lot of the artists trying to create their own platforms, but can you summarize it, an overview of what you think the current climate is with the artists and the music scene and music publishing as well? Yeah, I'd say the current climate is pretty exciting. I'm 31 years old, and I always assumed that by the time I got over 30. The older I got, and I know this to be true, the older you get, the further removed you are from the center. Because to me, you know, 
music in general is a youth-oriented thing. It's from like people from ages 15 to 25 is like the prime time of like loving music and being so into it. And the older you get, the less and less kind of enthused you are and the sort of jaded and kind of disinterested you become. But I'm 31 and I'm still super excited all the time for the music that's coming out. So the overall thing, I think the most important conversation that's happening in music right now that affects all music across the platform is streaming. We're into what they call, what they've been dubbed the streaming wars. I don't think it's much of a war, but okay, it's called the streaming wars. And, you know, last year was, I think, the first year in, since like 1999 or something, where the music industry actually grew their revenue. And all, almost all of that growth in revenue was attributed to the growth in streaming. So what's happening and the debates and the conversations that are happening around streaming is where it's at. And again, going back to my point about young kids, you know, the Generation Z and the millennial generation, all those, you know, I think they make up 70% of the Spotify audience. They make up a large streaming of, of the streaming audience, whether it's Spotify, YouTube, Apple Music, or Pandora, or whatever, or SoundCloud, whatever you're using. So to me, the new wave for everything is happening on streaming. And this goes back to my earlier point about music becoming a bit more genreless, is because we're not quite in the album era anymore. We're in the playlist era, where people are making playlists and they're consuming music that way. And that is why you can have a playlist that certain has a certain vibe, but can cross various genres. That's what this goes back to my point. You know, this is why it's kind of genreless. Is you make a playlist and you might have a dance song with a hip hop song with a pop song, with a rock kind of song, and it can all kind of just live together in one place. Something like that wasn't really possible. It was possible, but not quite the way it is now, and it's not easily accessible. So what's happening on the streaming side is, to me, very exciting. It's what I always dreamed of, which is, you know, I hopefully will get to the point where you can just inject music into your veins, which is what I'm, I'm looking forward to. You know, because again, it goes back to a lot of my older friends that tell me, oh, you know, it's not like buying CDs. And I'm like, I don't want to buy CDs. I don't want to go wait on a line. I want to hear the music right now, this very second. And, you know, streaming, it's weird to me because, again, I didn't grow up really buying music. I bought some music, but I mostly grew up downloading music. But nowadays, especially as I'm older and I'm less interested, I don't have the patience or the time to maintain what was once a vast and very immaculate you know, MP3 library where I titled all the songs specifically and made sure all the credits were correct and did all this stuff where it's just like, I'm just like, oh man, who the hell cares? Just give me the song. Oh, it's there. Okay, cool. One click. It's on my phone. Press play. Let's go. That's where music is right now. That's the battle that's happening. And streaming, it's not the complete picture of what the streaming economy is going to be isn't quite here yet, but we're getting so close. I think by the end of 2018, we'll be 100% there. Right now, it only feels like we're maybe 30, 40% of the way there. And it's very clear who the big players are, who's got the most at stake, and how things are shaping up. Well, um, yeah, I guess I want to say that there's, there's the completely opposite side of, you know, hardcore music fans in terms of people still buying vinyls. I'm not sure if, if that's still the case in America. Oh, yeah, no, people do buy vinyls in the U.S., and I don't think they're hardcore music fans. I think they're pretentious douchebags, oh, okay? okay. <laughs> it, it irritates me to no end. One of my favorite stats I ever read about vinyl is that 50% of the people who buy vinyl don't own a vinyl player. 
they can't even play the record. So don't tell me you're a music fan because you bought it. You're only a music fan if you play the music and listen to it. And the best way and the easiest way and the most accessible way to listen to music, to engage with the sound of the music, is on streaming, not on vinyl. So I don't want to hear about violence. It drives me crazy. That's a very strong opinion. I appreciate that. I just, <laughs> you know how you spoke about the current climate of music. How do you think Genius and a lot of the media publishers are playing part of the and streaming? Well, streaming is a big part. Well, actually, you know, I didn't even get a chance to talk about this, and I did want to mention it too. You know, when I first came to Genius, my initial job was not dealing with social or with editorial. The first thing I came on to do is work on what we call the Fact Track Project. And a fact track is if you go on Spotify and if you go on basically any big hit song on Spotify, and it, I don't know if you've used this, if you have an iPhone, I don't know internationally, I'm not sure how it plays in every, I think we're in most countries, but not Japan for some reason. Right. But if you go on Spotify and you press play on a song, you'll see the lyrics pop up on the screen with little facts. It's kind of like the pop-up video show from the 90s. I don't know if you're old enough. I haven't seen this before, to be honest. I'll check it out for sure, yeah. Yeah, well, listen, if you have Spotify and you have an iPhone, it'll definitely show up. Internationally, the rules are a little bit muddier, but that's the initial product that I came on to work on. And that was what I worked on for most of last year is writing fact tracks. So when you press play on a song, the lyrics pop up on the screen and facts that, and this is what I was writing, was like facts about the song or about the artist or about the lyrics themselves play on the screen with it. And to me, I mean, the first time I saw the product when I was interviewing for the position and I was like, do I want to work at this place, Genius? What have they got going on? Is, let's see what it is. And they showed me that and I saw it and I was like, wow, I need to work here because that's cool. That to me is one of the most innovative things that's happened in music consumption. Our CEO, Tom, you know, he was talking about this not that long ago and he made a good point. He said in the 80s or 90s or whatever, they introduced the CD Walkman, the Discman, right? And yeah. the display went is a little thing that says what track you're on. It doesn't give you the name of the track. It gave you the number and it gave you how much time had elapsed and how much time was left, right? That was the little thing that was on it. Then came the iPod. And then the first iPod had the actual name of the song, the name of the artist. It had how much time had elapsed and how much time was left. Then came the iPod Color and everyone's phones and things like that. And it got to the point where it had the cover of the album. It had the name of the song, the name of the artist, how much time was elapsed. That was all there was to it. Since then, there hasn't really been an update to the display of music while you're consuming it. And really, Fact Tracks, and this is not an exaggeration, is really the first innovation in that. So when you go on Spotify, you'll still see the name of the song, you see the name of the artist, you see how much time has elapsed and how much time is left, and you see the album cover, but then it flips and you start to see the lyrics along with the song. And then you start to read facts along with the song. And that's just, it's a unique musical experience that you cannot have anywhere else. If you go listen to Apple, Apple Music or Tidal, Pandora, Spotify, none of them have that product with them. And Genius is powering that. Now, Genius would love to power it for every music streaming service, and hopefully we, we can do that one day. But yeah, I mean, that's the kind of thing where it's like, there's so much more opportunity to me and to Genius of places to insert knowledge, places to bring people information about the music that they love. And streaming is going to enable that. Because now you have something that, like I said, is people are used to it being a static thing. It's just a picture of the album cover and the cover doesn't move. It never changes. It's just that. Well, why does it have to be that? Why is, you know, one of the things that I do miss from the vinyl era, the CD era, all those things, 
Because I remember as a kid buying CDs and reading the liner notes. Liner notes were cool. They were, I remember buying the M&M show and in the liner notes were hand, it wasn't actually handwritten, but it looked like his handwriting, you know, the lyrics to the album, to all the songs. It had the credits, it had where the songs was made and all this other information. And I'm like, and now, you know, it's 2017, there's more information than ever before and we have more access to it. And yet when it comes to music where it seems like people can't get the access, you know, it frustrates me even Spotify, I think, isn't great at this. It frustrates me that I can go on Spotify, listen to every Eminem song, but it won't tell me who produced the song. You can't even look. You can't. There's no way to find it unless you go and watch one of the fact tracks. And we always make sure to put this in there like, hey, this song is produced by such and such person. That's the kind of stuff that I think the future of streaming is really going to get more innovative and more creative and give us more information. And Genius is very much... Uh, we're very adamant at, at trying to be at the forefront of that, trying to bring you what we call music intelligence, music knowledge to the forefront because people are consuming music. There's no doubt about that. How do you make sure that the fact tracks are discoverable though, on Genius? Well, actually, you know, fact tracks, they play automatically if you have Spotify. And, you know, like I was saying before, a lot of the fact tracks are based on if you go to the original lyric page and go to the annotations that the users and the community wrote, a lot of those facts are from there. But again, we have a product, like we said, we have a website that not everyone knows how to navigate, not everyone knows how to discover. Now, we've taken that information from our, that our community is putting together, our loyal, great community, and then we flip that into a fact track on Spotify that's now being professionally curated by an actual writer and editors who are cleaning it up and making it presentable. And now we have Spotify playing it automatically for users, so they don't even have to click anything, it just shows up for them. And now that information, all that knowledge that was once buried deep on our site is now being just sort of spoon-fed to the perfect audience who wants to consume this because, hey, look, if you're listening to the song, why wouldn't you want to know what the exact lyrics are? Why wouldn't you want to know more about the artist, more about how it was produced, more about where it was made? That's who wants to hear about it, right? Yeah. Is Spotify like giving more weighting the fact that you're adding these fact tracks on to the songs? No, not really, because the way it works for us is we tend to do the fact tracks on the most popular songs anyway. Right? right. If a new Taylor Swift comes, song comes out, a new Eminem album comes out, if a Post Malone song is blowing up, that song is getting a fact track. And that's why I say, if we're at the point now, and this wasn't true last year, but now we're at the point where anytime a big hit song is out, we have to do it. And we're actually contractually obligated with Spotify. I mean, it's a part of our contract. Like, we have to do some power, some of their biggest playlists, like Rap Caviar and Today's Top Hits. So those are their two biggest playlists. So if it's a big hit song, it's probably going to be on that playlist. And if it's on that playlist, we definitely wrote a fact track or we're going to write the fact track. You know, it's only a matter of time. So, yeah, our focus for that has always been to doing the most popular songs. And then in the meanwhile, building a back catalog of classic songs. But classic songs tend to be the most popular songs. People are always going to want to listen to Michael Jackson's Beat It. You know, people are always going to want to listen to the Rolling Stones or the Beatles and things like that. So the, the back catalog is also a part of that. I mean, the, like, it's interesting though. like if you guys are focusing on the most popular songs and classics, but then for new journalists, they want to, it's probably more appropriate to focus on, you know, the upcoming, wouldn't it be better for them to, you know, do fact tracks for them? And that way that can help, you know, give leverage to those artists and potentially even give more weight on Spotify and those other streaming sites. No, not really. Number one, our, you know, you talk about young journalists. I mean, 
the Spotify product is made exclusively in-house at Genius. We don't do freelancers. You know, it's only the people on staff, and that's not an opportunity for any young journalist to really, you know, we've hired some people, but it's more for an established writer. But, you know, we do cover young and emerging artists too, but they have to get their views up. So if the views are big, and look, again, this is what I was saying before, the thing that I was saying about young journalists trying to come up, you know, I say, hey, look, make your own thing. You can blow up. That's also true of young artists coming up. There's kids who are blowing up right now. There's a kid, TK, or guys like YBN Namir who are like, shooting videos on YouTube or making songs on SoundCloud, and they're blowing up. Not overnight exactly, but in a couple of months. They go from all of a sudden no one knows who they are, and three months later they have a few million views. And look, when those people get on that radar, and they're on our editorial radar, and they're on our staff, just a staff of people who are obsessed with music and you know looking for the next hottest thing always, once that stuff gets on our radar, look, we're going to cover that stuff anyway. We like to bring in artists. There's a lot of artists we've brought in, too, for our show Verified. Again, this is the same thing that I'm telling young kids that they can do. We do it on our site, too, where, you know, we bring in a young artist like a Trippy Red or a Star-Lord or guys who aren't big stars yet. But we're like, yo, we like this one song, and I see it's blowing up on SoundCloud. I see it's blowing up on YouTube. Let's do a video with them. Let's see how it goes. And a lot of times, those videos for us, they do better than the established stars who you might already know or you might have heard of already. But some of these kids who you're like, well, who is this guy? This kid is doing, you know, they're putting numbers on the board. So that, what you're saying, doesn't exactly apply to Fact Tracks. No, thanks for clarifying that. I guess, yeah, it's really good to know. I'd like to sort of wrap up in terms of really getting an overview of your day-to-day responsibility as senior executive editor. And also really, if you can also conclude with some tips on growing a loyal audience, both in terms of a publication and your own audience, if that's possible. Yeah, for sure. My day-to-day... I just got this executive editor role a few months ago, so I'm stepping into it, getting used to the ebbs and flows of it. You know, I think I'm trying to focus less on the day-to-day things and trying to be a little bit more involved in sort of the big picture ideas. Overall, I think one of my most important roles, I mean, this I think is more for someone who's established the way I am in an organization, is just, you know, facilitating communication. We're a small team of genius, but we're a growing team. And you know, we increasingly have more people. We have a design team, we have a tech team, we have an expanding video team, we have a community team, and they're all small teams. They all mostly have four or five people with the exception of video, which has about, I think, 10 or 12. So every department has their own little thing. And we're at the point where we're growing as a company and we're growing as a staff. But at that time, it's extra important to facilitate communications between many different departments to make sure everyone's on the same page and everything clicks the way it's supposed to. So yeah, I mean, even in my day-to-day, you know, I spend a lot of time dealing with the video team, trying to assist them and trying to help with the sales team and making sure our branded stuff is on point. And the real thing, my focus on all that stuff is to make sure I find what's important for my team on the social side, the editorial side, and getting the information from the other teams and bringing it to them and making sure everyone's on the same page. That's a lot of what my focus is outside of just like editorial strategy, social strategy that I think comes with anyone who's in the position that I'm in. Does that make you happy and make more of you doing that aspect of the job? Yeah, you know, it's, it's fun. I mean, to be honest, I'm more motivated and more enthusiastic about the strategy stuff because I always get excited with just, I have an idea. I'm a, you know, I like having ideas. So I love when it's like, hey, let's try this thing and see if it works. And I love when we say, let's do this feature and then we do it and we put it up and the audience loves it or 
I say, hey, let's write this tweet or write this post, and then I see it blowing up on the site. I see the audience reacting to it. I see that's the stuff that really excites me and motivates me. The thing I was saying about the communication stuff is I think a byproduct of anyone who's in a managerial role, I think it's important, I think it's essential, in fact, to relay the information between and be sort of a liaison between many groups of people, especially because for me, I have a, you know, the team that I manage, they're a little bit younger than I am, and they're a little bit green to the game. I've been working in this business a long time, and I sort of, you know, I think I have a better understanding of the ebbs and flows and a better understanding of what can and can't be done and where you can assert yourself and where you just kind of have to accept the lay of the land, sort of. So I think that's the kind of stuff that, it's a new skill, and I like learning new things, so that's kind of exciting, but it's not something that I feel 100% adept. You know, I don't think I've, I'm still growing into that, is what I mean. I don't think I'm great at that quite yet. I understand. Um, just a bit more on the social side of your day-to-day. What, what are you more involved in, in terms of the strategy and audience development? Oh, audience development is a good point. And oh, actually, to go back to your earlier point about growing a, a loyal audience, yeah. yeah, that's something that I've been really, really honing in on on the social side. You know, I've always been involved in social, but never, never like this. And now, when I say involved in social, I mean I like to maintain my own Twitter presence. You know, I use Facebook and Instagram and things like that because that's I just kind of have them to have them. And I like to consume them too, but you know, Twitter is the one that I personally like to use a lot and I, I consider that a part of my voice and my sort of professional voice and all that. But you know, for us on the social side, when I look at the strategy and I look at the stuff that we do, the thing that we're always trying to drill down, and this is a, a different type of communication that we try to have with the audience. And what I mean by that is our brand is not about, as I was stressing earlier, Our brand is not about gossip, beef, feuds, all this nonsense. That's not what we're about. We're about music. And if you can read it on our Twitter, on our bio, on our IG, Instagram bio, we said music intelligence. And that's one of the things I've been trying to really drill down with our team and with our just entire social strategy. That's what really separates us from everyone else. Everyone will say, happy birthday. It's Drake's birthday. Happy birthday, Drake. Everyone is going to say Eminem's album is coming out. Everyone tweets that. Everyone covers that, right? What we do and what we're all about and what separates us is we try to bring a knowledge musical angle to that. It's not enough to just, you know, and we still do some of that stuff of just like, hey, you know, the Eminem album is coming out. But we try to draw out, okay, what is the music angle? Where is the knowledge angle? Okay, yeah, there's a new ad for his site. That's true. I mean, there's a new ad for his album, but... Hey, that ad actually has a reference to this lyric from this song. Hey, this is the anniversary of this album, but this album, did you know that the credits were written like this? Or did you know that this song was samples, this other classic song, and things like that? That's what we're always trying to do is drive home the idea of music knowledge beyond just the surface level. Understood. What are some of the tips, like, if, yeah, just in terms of growing, if there's, if there's like, a starting person in the industry, what are some tips for growing a loyal audience? I would say the first thing you should do if you're, especially a young person, you should write out what your vision is. What are you actually about? Where do you see your brand or your voice? What is it about? It's a difficult question to ask yourself. I think a lot of people, look, for a lot of young people, they don't really know, which I understand. I didn't know exactly what I wanted to be, but you know, you can maybe look at people and say, well, I, I like this person and I want to be like this person, whoever you admire. That's a good place to start, 
But, and I think when you start doing it and you start actually getting in the mix, you'll see what you're good at, what you're bad at, what you're comfortable with. But, so I would say starting out, you got to do it, but you got to get to the point where you have enough examples to, to make a decision of like what it is you're trying to be about and then trying to drill down on that idea by maintaining a sense of consistency. Even for me, and this is something I'll say on a personal side. You know, I've, like I said, I've had Twitter a long time. I've had Twitter since 2009. I love using Twitter. I tweet all the time. But for the most part, for many years, my Twitter was mostly, the main thing I talked about was rap music. Here's new albums coming out. Basically extension of my job. And that was the stuff that I would talk about. His artist is coming out. And I like other things. So maybe I'll talk about the NBA finals or the Oscars when they're, you know, whatever is going on at the time, right? But then last year, increasingly during the election, and then definitely after the election, I realized, man, I have a platform and I don't have a ton of followers, but I got some and I'm not going to use it on talking about music anymore. And since then, I've completely changed it. And the only thing I ever tweet about now is politics, 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 and basically anti-Trump every single day, all day, every day. You know, I wake up in the morning and I'm tweeting, you know, I'm furious all the time. And I'm not the only one. I think a lot of people have done a similar thing. A lot of journalists understand, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, but you know, that's the kind of thing where it's funny because since then I've actually increased my number of followers and a lot of my longtime followers and friends see me and they're like, hey, look, we appreciate what you're doing on your social. You're keeping us informed and you're really on top of the news and we appreciate that. That's a, a very high compliment for me, especially because that's not what my main job, that's not even my job. I do that essentially almost as a hobby, although it's a very unhealthy hobby, at least for my blood pressure. So again, I kind of changed what my brand was about, but I maintained a level of consistency about a specific issue is what I'm known for. I might delve into other things, but you gotta be known for something. What are you the best at? What are you all about? You gotta pick something. It can't be I'm about everything. No one can be about everything. Then you're about nothing. That's 100%, because there's so much you can talk about. Like even Besides politics, even in the music scene, I'm sure there's a lot of artists, a lot of angles you can take and perspectives. So I think that's a really good way to some end the note. I'd like to thank you for joining us on the podcast. Really appreciate it. Oh, for sure. Thank you for having me. I had a nice time. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the State of Digital Publishing Podcast. Listen to past and upcoming episodes across all major podcast networks. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and join our community groups. Finally, visit stateofdigitalpublishing.com for premium information, resources, and become a member today. Until next time.